0: This is the THORN Podcast, the show that navigates the complex world of wellness and explores the latest science behind diet, supplements, and lifestyle approaches to good health. I'm Dr. Robert Roundtree, Chief Medical Advisor at THORN and Functional Medicine Doctor. As a reminder, the recommendations made in this podcast are the recommendations of the individuals who express them and not the recommendations of THORN. Statements in this podcast have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Any products mentioned are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Thorne podcast. Rejoining us this week, we're going to have my colleague, Dr. Mary Kay Ross, who is the Chief Medical Officer at Thorne. And she's here again to share her knowledge on the brain, cognition, nootropics, and just about any other thing related to health and medicine. So welcome back, Mary Kay.
1: Thank you, Bob. It's exciting to be here. I'm excited to talk about some of the subjects that we have mentioned last time and to continue on this time with them.
0: You bet. It seems like we started touching on uh, a lot of things related to the brain that are all connected to other things, um, which is always true for brain-related health issues that, you know, sometimes people think, well, the brain is a different part of me, right? It's stuck up there in the cranium and it's unrelated to the rest of my body, uh, which uh, nothing could be further than the truth, I think you would say.
1: Your brain is definitely related to everything else in your body and all things need to be working.
0: I wish we could get uh, more neurologists on board with that idea that um, maybe things you do, like exercise, uh, actually impact your brain health.
1: Absolutely, exercise, diet, how you how you view the world and your world, and your attitude. Absolutely, all of it affects your brain, and all of it affects your health.
0: So, uh, I guess that brings us into what uh, I thought would be a really good topic to explore in a little more detail, which is uh, brain health for younger people maybe that are, are not so much at risk for, you know, dementia, uh, Alzheimer's, age-related, memory decline, but younger people who complain about things like brain fog. So I wonder uh, what your take on brain fog is. You know, it's it's interesting because if you look up brain fog in the medical journals, you don't find a huge number of articles on it. But yet, Brain fog's the kind of thing that if you bring up in conversation uh, with friends, you know, everybody has some idea about it, some thoughts about it, but it, it seems like it's not officially a medical entity. I wonder why that is.
1: Well, because I think it's such a nebulous thing, but it definitely is getting so much more attention now, which I think is wonderful. Um, because as I look back through my practice, um, I have for many, many years, seen people with true brain fog, um, but I don't think that we paid the same amount of attention to it as we do today. And I'm really glad that we do because I think that it is a sign of many other things. Most people think of brain fog as a temporary state of sort of a diminished mental capacity. You know, you can't concentrate, maybe you can't focus, you can't do your job as well. And now with COVID, we're learning this is so common with so many people with long haul or COVID. And it also affects people with TBI. um, Traumatic brain injury. Absolutely. And, And even mild traumatic brain injury that you would think that, you know, oh, you know, he just had his bell rung in a hockey game. And then suddenly the poor guy, maybe he's a teenager and he's not doing well in school. And it can be related to that. So it's it's really an interesting concept that now we're really dealing with in, in society much more commonly.
0: You know, I, sometimes it's a little challenging for me as a clinician because people will be sitting in front of me in my office or on a Zoom call and they say, boy, I have this terrible brain fog. And yet, you know, they're carrying on the conversation. They look normal. Everything seems normal about them, but they say, I just can't think. What's a clinician supposed to do when they get presented with that kind of scenario? You know, it's not like you've got somebody in front of you with a broken arm you know, where it's really obvious, but with brain fog, as you said, it's nebulous. It's a bit more subtle and other than acknowledging it and saying, well, yeah, I hear that you have brain fog. Do we really have any tools for measuring it or anything you can suggest that we use to kind of help the other person understand how severe is this and what do we begin to do? How do we address it?
1: So I think that's a great question. So we actually are going to have a brain fog study starting that Thorne will be involved in um, and we will be looking at three different groups and, and uh, that is probably gonna be teed off in the next month or so. Um, And we'll have lots of different um, research partners involved in that. But the thing is, you know, to measure it is really tough. And, um, you know, if you have someone who really performs well on a daily basis, they have a very high IQ and a high functioning level, and you try to give them some sort of a neuropsychological evaluation, they're likely to do well on it.
0: They're going to ace the test.
1: That's right. And so... It's not like a true, like, you know, you can't take an x-ray of a broken bone. But what you can do is you can do lots of questionnaires that can sort of query their mood and how they're feeling and and their energy level and what's been going on. And then you can also do some basic blood work, you know, make sure that, you know, everything's optimized, their vitamin D level's good. Make sure that, you know, they, they don't have something else going on. And then I think that there are definitely ways to improve brain fog. So, you know, there are a lot of clinics today that are treating long-haul COVID, and they're doing that and treating brain fog, and they're using physical therapists and occupational therapists together, actually, to work on these patients, and people are getting better. So it's really interesting. We're actually going to do a really deep dive and, you know, look at a lot of the labs and and the whole thing, trying to put this together. I think the mechanisms for the three groups that we're looking at are slightly different. So long-haul COVID versus, for example, um, TBI mm-hmm. versus chemo brain. So, oh, yeah. you know, ke- chemo brain is a big one. And, um, and certainly that's toxicity. It's also mitochondrial. Um, their mitochondria are affected and not able to make the energy that they're needed. And it'll be I think I'm really excited about it. I'm going to learn a lot.
0: You know, it's kind of ironic that we've had to have this terrible pandemic to really bring brain fog into the awareness of mainstream clinicians and neurologists in general. I, I was kind of alluding to Earlier, it, it was one of those conditions that didn't get any respect. People say have brain fog. Oh, yeah, you didn't get enough sleep, something like that. You you know, you need to clean up your act. You need to drink a little bit less. But now we know that people get COVID-19 and end up with severe brain fog for at least months. And that brain fog is, as you said, is really similar to what I've seen women that got chemotherapy for breast cancer years ago and said my brain has never worked right so i've actually seen articles on that on chemo brain so no know that's an accepted thing and now what i hear you saying is we're really trying to get into the mechanisms of what's going on what's the mechanism behind chemo brain what's the mechanism behind covid19 brain fog and i'm I'm hearing at least three things that it's inflammation, that it's mitochondrial dysfunction and that it's toxicity. So it seems like with those mechanisms, we can really, you know, take that ball and run with it.
1: Absolutely. And I, I think honestly, there is a lot that we can do to help these people. And I think, um, I do think that the brain fog is so prevalent with co- post COVID patients and I think that it has brought this, you know, sort of front and center. You know, if you think back, Bob, a few years ago, and a few, I'm I'm kind of teasing. So for a long time, there's been chronic fatigue clinics. And these were people who oftentimes they look like the healthy person, but inside they feel like they're just dying. And I think it's the same thing with the brain fog. I mean, honestly, it's a very hard thing for a physician to put their finger on but it's a very real thing. And it's devastating for patients. You know, they can't, they have to stop school. They can't continue with their jobs. They, you know, they just can't function 55. I think it's 55% of COVID patients. Sorry. 55. Wow. Still have percent that still have neurological symptoms three months after their illness.
0: Is that true for Omicron too, or is that all forms of COVID or do we know yet?
1: You know, I don't know how Omicron plays into this, to be honest with you. Yeah,
0: just because it's supposed to be less severe uh, than, the, you know, the Alpha variant, Delta variant. But, you know, one would think somebody can get Omicron and still end up in the ICU. So, it, you know, it can still have these devastating systemic effects.
1: That's true. And some people believe that, you know, really the COVID virus sort of hijacks the cells. So if that's the case, I don't know that that would make a difference, even if it were a milder form of virus, you know,
0: they could still do the same damage.
1: I would think so.
0: Now, here's something I've, I've seen on and off for years that I've always been curious about is a person that tells me they're feeling they may be feeling a little bit better, almost okay. And then they eat. And it doesn't matter what they eat. Like, you know, initially you might think, well, you're, that happens when you eat sugar or gluten or dairy or something you're sensitive to. But I've had people over the years tell me anytime they eat, then they start feeling this brain fog like within an hour. And I've often wondered, is is there some chemical that's being released by the gut microbiome or is it? endotoxemia and i know that's a little bit of a technical word for some of our readers so maybe we could talk about it but i'm i'm wondering what your thoughts are on that person who says their brain fog gets worse after they eat is it a metabolomics issue or you know what's what path should we be going down for somebody like that?
1: i definitely go to the microbiome and wonder if there's something that their bacteria in their gut is making that they're responding to. I think that's really an interesting thought. We know what happens. It's just, you know, I feel like there's so, so many things are so related to the microbiome. I guess you're sounding like your patients don't have more than just brain fog. So, you know, that's a little more nebulous and certainly can be several other things as well. You have to look at the metabolisms and see if they, are having any glucose issues, um, insulin issues, certainly. Um, it could be a bacteria in the gut for sure, um, because we know that that can have all kinds of effects on you. That I think is really interesting.
0: Well, part of what's really gotten my curiosity up is these studies. I think there are at least one, maybe more, of people with long-haul COVID showing that their gut microbiome is way out of whack that they have severe dysbiosis. So that would kind of fit in that if they're with what you're saying, that if there's a, uh, a particular bacteria that's making a particular chemical, we may not, may not know what that chemical is yet, but, uh, but perhaps these people with long COVID are getting this dysbiosis and that's making the chemical and somehow eating is spurring that bacteria on to make more of that bad chemical. Is that, does that seem like a good hypothesis?
1: I think that is fascinating. And that certainly could be a great hypothesis and, and then take it one step further. Certainly the chemical could be having the effect on the brain. And also, you know, if, if they truly have bad dysbiosis, they certainly can develop leaky brain as well. Right. Blood brain barrier. Can you, can you say a little more about that leaky blood brain barrier? Well, absolutely. So, your blood brain barrier is designed to keep toxins out, and it has to do with the size of the particles. And certainly, you know, when you have, first of all, when you have a leaky gut, you know, you're allowing things to get through the membrane of the gut that shouldn't, and you can develop autoimmune disease. um, And we really believe that it also, promotes brain problems. And, and so you get a leaky blood brain barrier where suddenly bacteria can fit through, viruses can fit through, toxins can fit through. And uh, it's really, it's, it's fascinating. Even, you know, uh, parts of your body that, you know, like albumin shouldn't be in your blood brain barrier, get through your blood brain barrier. But when it does, then it combined with other inflammatory things, and and create a lot of brain inflammation, and and um, yeah, lead to amyloid deposition. So it's really interesting how our body works, and and how we have these defenses that get broken down, and it can be from our environment, it can be from lots of different things.
0: So this brings two questions up for me. One is, are you going to be doing? the thorn gut health test, which is a, a really sophisticated test for, for the, the different kind of microbes in the gut. Are you going to be doing that test in any of these brain health studies? And, and then the second part of that is, is how do we treat the leaky blood brain barrier? So the two different related things, but kind of related actually.
1: Yes, I'm going to be doing, so in the study with the brain fog, we will be looking at the microbiome through the thorn test. And then in the brain program, which I think we talked about last time, we are putting together a program, a brain wellness program for THORN. This is something that doctors, all doctors, all practitioners, I guess they don't have to be an MD, will be able to access this and utilize it for their patients. And we will actually provide them with a artificial intelligence platform that will give them a personalized program designed specifically for their patient. And so in that program, we will be looking at microbiome for sure. And we will definitely be using the Thorne study and several of the other Thorne studies as well, um, just where needed. It's not, not a blanket thing that we have to do, whereas in the study, we will do it with everybody. But it's interesting when I think about the different defenses. The other thing I've been really interested in lately is pulmonary endothelial permeability. Really? Leaky lung? Leaky lung. And oh I think it's just really fascinating. Wow, leaky gut,
0: leaky brain, and leaky lung. That's right. And where do you see that happening?
1: So you see that with a lot of problems with leaky gut. You can see it with people that are inhaling a lot of pollution and toxins. Um, and really, it, it can break down, you know, the pulmonary uh, defense system, if you will. And, but I think it's really interesting with leaky gut, because I find that there are people that eat, and then they are coughing, and they develop this whole mast cell activation syndrome, they also have a leaky lung. And uh, I think it was Dr. Karazi, and I was just listening to you on this recently.
0: Oh yeah, oh, yeah. I know that he's well.
1: Yes, smart man.
0: Very smart guy. Now that I mean, this this a whole other topic for discussion. But I understand the number one environmental risk factor for rheumatoid arthritis is cigarette smoking and/or air pollution. So the thought is that you know, we used to say rheumatoid arthritis starts in the gut. Now there's pretty good evidence that rheumatoid arthritis actually starts in the lungs.
1: Isn't that interesting?
0: Really interesting. So this inflammatory process causes leaky lung syndrome. And, you know, then that leads to this systemic autoimmune reaction, which is completely fits in with what you're saying.
1: Exactly. No, it's fascinating. Very, very interesting.
0: So what do we do for leaking barriers? And I, I must say, in the you, you, you know this, that in the Institute for Functional Medicine, uh, we often quote this old saying that good fences make good neighbors, which is right. that if you've got healthy barriers, then that goes a long way to preventing a wide range of illnesses from brain disorders to lung to autoimmune inflammatory bowel disease, etc. So I'm wondering what your favorite nutrients are, especially with a focus on the on the leaky blood brain barrier.
1: Yeah, so for the leaky blood brain barrier, to me, you've got to put the inflammation out, you get this inflammation going that is just crazy. And so um, then you can get the astrocytes stirred up and glial cells. And, you know, it's it's like transmitting inflammation everywhere, it's got to be sort of put out, that fire has to be put out. And so the supplements that I like, I think you have to think about your membranes. And, and so when you think about membranes, I certainly think about, you know, good fats, good healthy fats for the brain. The brain has a is a territory full of fat. And it also is an energy hog. And so, you know, I try to think about membranes. I've been very interested in plasmalogens recently. Oh, um, yeah. I spent an hour with Dr. Goodenow yesterday. Oh, you did? I okay. did. And I think that's fascinating. So I'm trying to learn more about that and see how that, you know, where that comes in and how it all works. But it's fascinating.
0: He's Dr. Goodenow a pretty brilliant guy and he's written a lot of articles just that Hardly anybody else is talking about this but him, so either yeah. he's way ahead of the crowd or, or kind of off on a tangent. It sounds like you feel like he's way ahead.
1: I think he may be way ahead, to be honest with you, and I've had a few patients that we've reached out and used some of his supplements. They've helped him. I talked with uh, Dr. Phipps at Thorne, and lo and behold, we're looking into that as well, so oh. I'm very excited to hear that. So, so stay prompted, tuned on that one. That's right. So that prompted me to get back together with Dr. Good now because I need to be on my game. I need to understand more.
0: <laughs> what's, and, what's out there.
1: And, and and yeah, and learn more. But anyhow, I think that is fascinating. So you have to have a good um, membrane. You want to put out your inflammation and you need to make sure your mitochondrial function is good. It's a very mitochondrial rich territory and so I start, I love uh, good fish oil. Um, I think that's important. DHA is very important in the brain. Um, I'm a big believer in curcumin. It's, it's one of my very favorite things. So our Mariva uh, SF500 is my favorite thing. And so anyone that knows me or that's a patient of mine probably is on a couple of grams of that a day as I am. I think it really helps stabilize a brain. It reduces the progression of neuronal damage and you you can speak to this probably better than I, because you've actually been with and involved with Thorne long, much longer than I, but the truth is it's the most studied uh, mm-hmm. curcumin. I yep, think that we there are have are some
0: studies on Mariva
1: and, you know, curcumin um, is, is something that is not normally well absorbed and, the bioavailability is very poor, but um, I guess because we encapsulated in a phytosome, it is very well absorbed and very well tolerated. So um, that's so- one of one of my big favorites. Phosphatidylcholine is oh, really good. important.
0: I, I was just going to ask. <laughs>
1: <laughs> really interesting. You know, we're working with this embody platform at Thorne, where we're looking at digital twin populations and phosphatidylcholine has become so pronounced, you know, it's 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 really very important. Um, and um, it can actually help stave off brain problems for many years, like 10, 15 years, if you were inevitably going to develop them. Something that's that uh, we use in all of our patients. One of the things that where I think we're gonna start doing with the uh, stool study though, is to look at TMAO, because that is one of the things that the gut microbiome can make when you take uh, phosphatidylcholine. But what it does is it actually helps. So when our brain, our brain has mechanisms of dealing with things. And so, you know, you can think of leaky brain, you can think of inflammation, but one of the things that really causes a lot of problems in the brain is dyshomeostasis of cholesterol. And so it's how it's managed and it it can actually overburden the neurons. And, um, and so that's where the phosphatidylcholine comes in. It really helps restore the cholesterol homeostasis so that the brain isn't overworking. I mean, it's just as important to do that as it is to make sure you have good mitochondrial function and everything else. Um, so that's certainly a thing. Nicotinamide riboside.
0: Just, to, just before important. we finish up on that, the phosphatidylcholine, isn't that the main component of the sunflower lecithin that Thorne uses in yes. the phytosomes? it like, sure is. So when you take Meriva or Quercetin phytosome or Silifos, which is... Sillamar and phytosome then you're getting a
1: is it in cell?
0: uh the quercetin phytosome is in cell, yeah so yeah i think you're getting a pretty good dose of phosphatidylcholine or pc in all of those supplements so you can take pc by itself which is a great thing but you're also getting it as kind of a side benefit when you're taking any of the phytosome products
1: absolutely
0: and then I just wanted to, to mention, and then I think we'll need to take a break after this question, but you, you brought up uh, mast cell activation syndrome. I know that Dr. Theo Horides at Tufts uh, has done a lot of work on uh, mast cell mediators, chemicals released by mast cells and how those affect the blood brain barrier. And he actually has done a lot of research on using quercetin, to help stabilize mast cells. So I wonder if quercetin phytosome is part of your program.
1: It is. I actually love using resveracel is one of my favorite things for my patients because they get quercetin phytosome, they get the transresveratol, they get uh, the trimethylglycine to help with methylation, and then they have nicotinamide riboside.
0: Mm-hmm. All in one
1: all in one and then i sometimes then continue giving depending on the patient and what their needs are i will you know continue to bump up some of those things so quercetin is a very safe thing to use and and very well tolerated so sometimes i'll give additional quercetin if i have someone that i think is having a bigger problem
0: but it sounds like you like to use the resveratrol as kind of your foundational
1: that's right uh,
0: product yeah and then build and then you build on that uh, that's
1: exactly what i do for individuals
0: very cool well i think we need to take a break so after the break we'll come back and answer some questions from our listeners that will go into a little bit more detail about all this Hello, this is Dr. Robert Roundtree, your host of The Thorn Podcast. Do you have a health topic you want covered or a question you want answered on the show? Then reach out to us on Instagram and we'll try and cover it in a future episode. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the show through your favorite podcast app. Subscribing to the show enables you to stay up to date on the latest in medical research, follow the next big ideas in health and technology, and get insights from experts on common health concerns. Subscribe today through the podcast app of your choice. Thanks for listening. Now let's get back to the show. And we're back. So now it's time to answer some questions that have come in from our community. We always appreciate it. And the, the first one this week comes from someone who asked, how does blood sugar impact the brain? And what does it mean to be hangry? Is that related to blood sugar? Or what you know, is it more complicated than that? You know, does that mean there's brain damage going on? Mary Kay, what do you think?
1: Well, I don't think that it means that you have brain damage going on, but definitely Um, It's a glucose thing. If you're that person, and, and maybe even some of us can relate to this, and you eat more carbs and you have spikes in blood sugar and then they fall, it can make you feel as if you need food. It can make you feel as if you're hungry and you feel angry and you have low blood glucose levels. I believe that it's because you tend to eat more carbs. And if you were to eat more of a, they get broken down quickly into simple sugars and amino acids and and, and you you use them quicker. And I think that if, and the brain is a very, as I said, an energy hog. And I think that um, it can make you feel that fatigue, that irritability. And if you change sort of your approach to eating and you try to eat more fats, healthy fats, that is, and um, not as many high carbs and simple sugars, it can make a difference.
0: I remember years ago hearing Dr. Richard Wirtman at MIT talking about this. And what, what he said is it's when, when people have these kind of symptoms, it's more than just drops in blood sugar or even spikes in blood sugar but that it's um the insulin is affecting branched chain amino acids which are competing with tryptophan and that your insulin levels go up and that actually ends up causing more tryptophan to go into the brain so you know you get if you get a spike in your blood sugar your insulin goes up and then you're you end up transporting more tryptophan in the brain and that can make you feel really groggy. Is that something that we still think is a, is true? That was a hypothesis, but...
1: Um, I think that makes sense. I definitely think that it is. it's more than just glucose. It's definitely an insulin response. There's no doubt about it. No mm-hmm. doubt about it.
0: So insulin can do all kinds of things to not just glucose, but to your amino acids as well.
1: Oh, yeah. Absolutely.
0: So what's the worst? This is an interesting question. What's the worst thing to your brain? for your brain? What's more damaging to your brain? Is being addicted to caffeine, is that damaging to your brain? What about alcohol? What does that do to the brain or other drugs? And by drugs, I assume they mean recreational drugs, things like um, THC or cocaine or things like that. What is, what's the kind of gist, gist of what all these things do to our brain cells?
1: So I'm a big believer that alcohol is very bad for your brain. I, I believe, uh, I think alcohol is a neurotoxin. Mm-hmm. Um, I also worry about the other things in alcohol. So take wine, for example, and, and I like wine. Mm-hmm. But if you think about wine um, and think about the strain of the grapes and everything else mm-hmm. that you're getting, you know, it can be very toxic. Um, so I, I, definitely, because of the
0: pesticides, like, you mean,
1: yes, yes. Um, the glyphosate, I really believe that, um, alcohol though is a toxin. I think that's probably part of, of, uh, what makes people like it. Right. I mean, what,
0: <laughs> yeah, as toxins go, it's one of the best
1: <laughs> as toxins go. It works really well.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But so... maybe in even more than just a little bit of moderation. Yeah, maybe just an every now and then.
1: Exactly. Um, just not, a, I don't think that people were meant to sit down and, and, and drink daily and to drink multiple drinks every day. I don't think that's good for you. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I definitely think that that's toxic to our brain, for sure.
0: Do you think caffeine is toxic? I mean, I, I have to say it's one of my favorite drugs, you know, probably the one of the favorite drugs over all over the world but uh is it bad for you
1: i think that too much um so caffeine first of all as you know there's a genetic component right some of us metabolize it better than others i'm a poor metabolizer i'm not that person that can drink caffeine and go to bed so i don't drink a lot i always have a cup in the morning and I stop right there because if not, then I'm just wired for sound. But there are many, many studies that show that caffeine actually enhances to a point, your cognition, um, that you're focused and you function better. Um, and there, you know, I have some patients, I'm thinking of one in particular, who really, he just thrives on caffeine and it, and it seems to work. I also worry about mycotoxins in caffeine. Um, And, you know, I don't know the perfect answer. I'm not that person that recommends everybody stop drinking coffee. And I'm not the doctor that recommends you have to buy this specific brand to avoid your mycotoxins, because I'm not sure that I really believe that that is a doable thing. But I do wonder about it, you know, and depending on where the
0: coffee's grown, you mean it's sprayed or exactly and that's the coffee you're going to get at a at a big chain you know that doesn't say it's organic
1: that's right that's exactly right and it does make a difference i do think it makes a difference to buy organic things and especially coffee would be one of them i don't think coffee's terribly dangerous for the brain in and of itself for each and every person
0: you know it's interesting there is a particular form of caffeine that i'm really fond of and it's a uh, It's a caffeine terastilbene co-crystal, right? It sounds really fancy, but it's basically a way of making the caffeine kind of time-release so it doesn't cause this big surge. And Thorne uses it in their product Memoractive.
1: Memoractive, yes. They
0: sure do. So it's interesting because it's not for giving people a caffeine rush, but in my experience of taking that particular form of caffeine... Is that I do experience more alertness. Uh huh. I've taken um, it actually. Without being shaky. Too.
1: Yeah.
0: Doesn't make you shaky. So I. So it sounds like the verdict from both of us is that in proper doses and maybe in the right form, like that co-crystal uh, caffeine, can be beneficial for the brain without necessarily causing the cardiovascular effects.
1: That's right. That's exactly right.
0: And then, as far as the other drugs go. Uh, the addictive drugs like uh, cocaine and meth and stuff like that. It seems to me like those things just fry your brain.
1: I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> the, I don't this even, is your I don't brain even, on drugs,
0: you know? It's I don't like, know why,
1: quite what to discuss for that, but yes. <laughs> I think, I mean, my good. impression
0: is that what they do is like they basically release your body's entire stores of dopamine, you know, in five minutes. And dopamine is not one of those things that you want to release rapidly. You know, you want little squirts of it here or there from, you know, pleasurable things you do like exercise. Dopamine is nature's system for giving us little bits of pleasure from time to time. If you use all that up in five minutes, you're, you're going to be in bad shape.
1: That's exactly right. Um, interesting. Those are interesting Not that I've done this a lot, but I have a a handful of people that have been referred to me that, you know, have had problems with methamphetamine. And it's really interesting trying to get them back, you know, to where everything's at the proper level and their neurotransmitters are calmer and increasing, you know, the inhibitory. And it's just, it's an interesting thing. Um, And I've, I've done a little bit with testing neurotransmitters and uh, had some good results. It's interesting.
0: Well, you know, that that's going to give me an excuse to kind of jump ahead on one of the questions that I think is relevant to this. One of the readers says, I love Thorne's Pharma GABA product. Can you explain what that does exactly? And I have to say, I love that. I love Pharma GABA as well. I take it all the time myself.
1: Yeah. So GABA is an inhibitory neurotransmitter, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm and really in our brain i don't know that people think about this and is you have sort of the yin and the yang you've got the excitatory you've got the inhibitory and you need balance we need balance when we increase our brain levels of gaba right it can have an anxiolytic effect um it reduces feelings of stress restlessness it can help you with sleep if you have trouble with sleep it can be associated with increased alpha brain waves and decreases the, the beta brain waves and can really be calming. So when I look at neurotransmitters, which I think the, the downside of looking at them is that they're transient. So they, lots of things can change them, right? And can change them quickly. So you have to understand you're looking at a picture in time and they have to be tested rather frequently if we choose to do that approach. But um, it's really interesting to balance them and and then try to determine, you know, where imbalances are, because obviously serotonin um, is made, a lot of it is in your gut, right? And so if you've got an unhealthy gut, there's chances that you have problems. So i i think it's a it's an interesting thing to look at and um an interesting thing to try and balance
0: i've had some colleagues that say well gaba you can't get it you can't absorb it and you can't get it into your brain but there are published human studies on pharma gaba showing that it changes uh i think it's either brainwave activity or or behaviors that there's no other explanation for how it would be working, other than saying it's somehow getting into the brain and binding to those GABA receptors, which are the same receptors that Valium binds to, by the way. That's exactly right. (laughs) But, you know, PharmaGaba doesn't have a Valium effect. It's much milder. Milder. Uh, Yeah. It just makes people feel calm, and I've never seen anybody get dependent on it or have withdrawal from it or anything like that no no no
1: it's it's a it's a great anxiolytic calming thing and you're right you don't you don't feel like you you know if if you take valerian roots sometimes you feel like you've taken a valium but you won't feel that with uh, the pharma gaba interesting question for you so you're right that a lot of people will say gaba cannot get into the brain there are some people that are proponents of if you want to find out if you have a leaky uh, blood-brain barrier, take a gram of GABA and see if you feel it in the morning. And the reality is I wonder, wondered if it wasn't depending on how the GABA is prepared, if you will, and the size of the molecule.
0: Yeah, there's something about the pharma GABA, which comes from a plant that I think may increase it's absorption over uh, some of the other GABA products I've seen over the counter that are just synthetic GABA, whereas the pharma I think, maybe has a slightly different chemical structure. I don't remember the name of the plant that it comes from, but it is an extract, I think, from seeds.
1: Yes. No, it definitely is, and I don't remember the name of it either, but it does come from a plant, and I don't know the size of the molecule, if it's different. Than the synthetic, my gut is that it probably is. It's definitely better absorbed, and you definitely see changes in brain waves.
0: Earlier, you talked about curcumin, omega three fatty acids, especially DHA, uh, phosphatidylcholine, and th- the next question is kind of relevant to that: is person says, "Well, what vitamins are best for your brain? Are there other things that are particularly good for the brain, like?" mitochondrial support, nutrients, or
1: Absolutely. B vitamins, things like that? Yes. So so one of my favorite things that Thorne, I think, has that is, is amazing, and again, it is one of those things that is in my foundational supplements, and then you can add more if need be, and it's a form of vitamin B3, is nicotinamide riboside, and it's a precursor of NAD, which is essential it's taken orally. It's got great bioavailability. You know, for cognitive decline, I think it's really exciting to think of what, what it can do and what it can bring. And it also increases hippocampal synaptic plasticity. Um, and that was, I think, in a diabetic mouse model.
0: And the hippocampus is like your, the brain's card catalog for memories.
1: That's exactly right. It is. It's your memory center is what I tell people. It definitely is. And one more thing that we didn't mention that I think is worth mentioning, and I was going to do it when we were on our coffee thing, is whole coffee fruit extract. And the reason I want to mention that is it too is so good for the brain and it increases something called BDNF, which is brain derived neurotrophic factor. It's like the growth hormone for the brain. And Thorne is making that, so we don't have it out yet, but it's coming, and I'm really excited about it because it's a very hard thing to find right now. I think it's gonna, it'll be a great addition to sort of our um, brain armamentarium, if you will.
0: What about CoQ10? Is that something that you think is a is a helpful brain nutrient? People think of CoQ10. Yeah, they think for the heart, but what about the brain?
1: Well, it's definitely important for the brain. Yes. Absolutely.
0: Do you have any preference over the form of the coquetan? I know that the powdered CoQ10 is not well absorbed.
1: Our coquetan at Thorn is a gel cap and it's very well absorbed. And that's actually what I've been using for my patients. Yep,
0: yeah, I can attest to that too, just from measuring, giving it to people and then measuring their blood levels. So I, I know it gets into the bloodstream. I've got proof of it.
1: Yeah, no, it's interesting. It it definitely works, and um, it's it's very very important for brain function and mitochondrial function.
0: The last question I think we could talk about a while. Um, can you detox your brain? And you know how is that related to gut detox?
1: Interesting. Yes, you can detox your brain. When we talk about toxins. In the brain and in the gut. So if let's talk about, for example, a heavy metal. Heavy metals definitely affect brain health. They affect our entire health, right? And can cause great problems. And yet, I don't know if you want me to go into this, but when I detox people, I'm very careful to make sure their gut is intact before we really get hot and heavy into detox, or you can make them very sick. Right.
0: So you want to know what's happening with their gut microbiome first.
1: I do. I like to do that, absolutely.
0: And what say what would you typically find in somebody who you might call a toxic patient? And and let me just say, I think we should probably come back and do a whole episode on toxins and the brain and toxins in general. So stay tuned everybody because I think we'll we'll come back and address this whole thing about mycotoxins and heavy metals and all that. But Uh, Right now, I'm just wondering, like, what what might you see in the gut microbiome that, that, you know, raises a red flag that says, okay, I need to work on this and that's going to help me detox the brain.
1: So I think, first of all, if you're just talking to lay people just to understand the way that I view this, and, and I don't know if you'll agree with this or not, is I view our body as a bathtub think about it, you're born and you're most of us, not all of us, but most of us are born pristine. Um, We have a great tub. It drains well, you know, the water flows in when you need it to, but you can pull the drain, which is analogous to your body's innate ability to detox. And that takes into effect your genetics and everything else. But we all go through life and we store things. We, we pack things in our tub, if you will, we layer them in. So when you get a really toxic person, suddenly everything they do matters. It matters if their diet's horrible. It matters if they're in a house full of smokers. And so when I look at a toxic person and I look at, for example, their stool study, you're going to see that they're not going to have good absorption because their gut's broken down. I think of the gut, you think about um, the way the mucosa should be of the gut. right? It absorbs nutrients. It's got finger-like projections called villi. Um, I I think I've heard a long time ago, and I don't remember who it was lecturing, uh, they were using the analogy of a shag carpet. okay? And that gives you increased surface area to absorb. Well, suddenly it's like if you're a diver and you know what a bad, Coral reef looks like it's just everything's dead. So poor absorption, lack of short chain fatty acids, which is what we have from good microbiome. You know, from having the good bacteria, they'll have pathologic bacteria. Their uh, secretory IgA will be elevated. You know, their immune system is flared, and and that's what you really see with a, a sick person. And if you go and you try to start detoxing you've got to remember when you're pulling toxins out in the human body it's circulating suddenly and if your gut is leaky you know you're suddenly dispersing it in other areas that you don't want it to go so i think it's really important to make sure that you have optimized all your nutritional status you fix the gut if it's leaky and then you go after the detox program
0: wonderful well i think that's going to be a perfect setup for our next episode, where we'll go into toxicity in a lot more detail. So that's all we have time for this week. Dr. Ross, thank you so much for coming back on. It's always great talking to you and always seems like there's more we can talk about.
1: That's right. Well, Bob, thank you for having me.
0: So that's Dr. Mary Kay Ross, who's Thorne's chief medical officer. And this was our second episode about brain health. As always, thank you everyone for listening. If you like what you heard, tell a friend. Let them know about the show and ask them to tune in. Until next time. Thanks for listening to the Thorn Podcast. Make sure to never miss an episode by subscribing to the show on your podcast app of choice. If you've got a health or wellness question you'd like answered, simply follow our Instagram and shoot a message to at you can also learn more about the topics we discussed by visiting thorn.com and checking out the latest news, videos, and stories on Thorn's Take 5 daily blog. Once again, thanks for tuning in, and don't forget to join us next time for another episode of the Thorn Podcast.